earth and sky, woods and fields, lakes and rivers, the mountains and the sea, are excellent schoolmasters and teach some of us more than we can ever learn from books. John Lubbock. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That quote was provided by today's guests, Krista and Rob Rahm of Forest Green Farm. So this week we're trying to do a double episode, which I edited together. I recorded them individually because I only have two microphones and that would require more and these microphones are very expensive. And more importantly, because I like one-on-one conversations. I feel as though group conversations usually are kind of shallow and to be honest, I kind of usually zone out if it's a group conversation. So I'm glad I kept this one-on-one and I did the first part with Krista and the second part with Rob. I'll read you their bio so you can know a little bit about them before we get into the podcast. In 1992, Krista and Rob Brom purchased a farm in Louisa, Virginia, with a desire to raise their children with a close connection to nature while respecting seasonal living and knowing the value and health benefits of producing their own food. The Rom family began the journey to make their farm sustainable by growing fruits and vegetables, raising animals for their meat, and growing and cultivating herbs for healing. After many years of learning to live in harmony with the land, studying with medicinal herbal mentors, and making farming their full-time occupation, the Rams began a new mission to educate people about whole living by supplying products and offering classes to support their mission. At Forest Green Farm, they offer educational classes, over 400 varieties of herbs, vegetables, and flowering plants, pasture-raised chickens, beef, eggs, herbal teas, dips, seasonings, personal care products, naturally grown hay, and registered miniature Hereford cows. During the winter, they utilize their greenhouse for a winter CSA of specialty greens and salad mixes. So if you want to check them out, you can go on Instagram. They're at Forest Green Farm, and Forest is with two R's. So F-O-R-R-E-S-T. And the website is Forest Green Farm as well. Forest with two R's. And you can find out more about joining one of their CSAs or registering for classes um, when they reopen um, next year after COVID. The theme of this podcast really seemed to be about raising a family. And I found that very fascinating because this is extremely different from how I grew up. I grew up with both parents working IT. They were never home. I was raised by nannies. Um, I hated being at home. I didn't like my parents as a kid. I just wanted to be off of my friends as much as possible. So the concept of basically a farm, home, family lifestyle where you see your family all the time 
it's really interesting to hear about. And it's really interesting in thinking about my future family. Is this something I would want to do? Homeschooling, being on a property all day long, being as self-sufficient as possible. To get into some news about the podcast, the goal is to release two of these a month, um, every other Sunday. And our next podcast is going to be with Virginia's fur bear biologist. And I'm talking to him next week. So I'm really excited for that podcast. I'm going to be asking him about weasels, skunks, um, raccoons, possums, and uh, hopefully he's got some interesting stories from a lifetime working for Virginia's game and inland fisheries. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so we're live. I'm here with Krista Rahm, as I say it? Yes. And we're at Forest Green Farm, and you're half of that. Half of it, yes. Very cool. And uh, I've been here painting a sign, a botanical sign with botanical illustrations with all of the herbs that you grow here for the past few days, and we decided to do a little podcast. Thank you, and thank you for doing the sign. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I guess it would be cool to kind of describe where we are. We're in central Virginia. Um, halfway, not halfway, but between Charlottesville and Richmond, right off of 64. Um, in is this, con- and I was asking Rob, is this considered Piedmont? It is considered the Piedmont region. Okay, so it's pretty flat. There's, it's, and then you can kind of see some mountains off in the distance, but this mm-hmm. is kind of a flat agricultural rural area, yeah? It is, and we're actually up on a hill, so we're lucky that we get a breeze, but for this area, it's a hill for this area, not not like where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's great about where we live, being on this little hill in this flatter area, is we can see the mountains like clear till sunset. It's just incredible. Um, and on clear days, we can see the entire Blue Ridge when you look out there. And now that you've done our love sign, if you look behind it on a clear day, we'll be able to just see the Blue Ridge. It will be... So cool. Yeah, it will be really awesome. Super cool. So I like to start all of these podcasts by asking the guest, um, have, in the past week, two weeks, have you had any interesting plant, animal, fungus, weather observations or sightings? Oh, all of the above. So um, yeah, it, like, oh, for instance, for me, um, about last week, um, I was downstairs with my headphones working on an illustration and Vivian, my girlfriend, came downstairs and she said, are you making that weird noise? And she thought I was playing some music. And I was like, what do you mean? I took my headphones off and we heard like a... I'm like, what the hell? And it's probably like 10 o'clock at night. And we went outside and we have a headlamp that's for caving. So it's like high powered, like a big beam. Mm -hmm. And Vivian put it on her head and we came around the corner in our yard. And the yard is very small and then it's a bunch of trees. And right as we did, an owl busted off. And it was the barn owl, which we've never seen before. Um, we've never seen it in the wild. We have barred owls mm-hmm. and, and I've heard the, um, the big horned owl while hunting and camping, um, on the edge of West Virginia, but in our yard, we've never had the barn owl. So we, to see it bust off and then it went a few branches back and then it was hissing from back there. And when we didn't quite know what it was yet. We went inside and we're like, well, which owl does that? Found out it was the barn mm-hmm. and they don't hoot. They only do this like demonic it's right, like demonic, right. like hiss, and so that was really cool. Yeah, and we've actually held one before. At we went to a um, a few Christmases ago for Vivian. I got her present was to go to a falconer and to hold 
um, oh, yeah. two owls, yeah. and one of them was that barn yeah. owl. And in nature, they're just so different than, oh, yeah. than that. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing. We, um, we have the great horned owl mostly around here, nice. and they've been very um, interesting for us because when we first moved here, you know, we both came from semi-city, semi-country. It was, you know, it was not city like New York where you lived, but it was definitely a city, a smaller city in Pennsylvania. And um, when we came down here, we didn't know the noises that owls make. And I remember the first year we were sitting on the deck here and we heard at night at dark, like it sounded like dinosaurs. Mm. And I'm like, what in the world is that? You know, we weren't used to everything like we are now. And it took us, it took us a year to figure out what it was like. And then we finally ran into them. But I've been in the woods with my kids before. And my daughter had this thing going on and I believe in plant and animal spirit medicine stuff. And she she had this thing where the owl would chase her in the trails, but they're silent. So they would totally freak her out because you can't hear them. Like, you know, you can't hear them when they're flapping like that. Like, I'm surprised you heard that. Maybe that's specific to the barn owl, but um, the great horned owl, you just can't hear them. And they would like come right up to her. And like, that was her nightmares for years because they would just show up at her. Oh my and then God. as she, she got older and I would read to her from the book about what that meant, she came more at ease with it. But what did it mean? I don't even remember now. It was something about, um, so with the owls, it had something to do with wisdom and change. Yeah, Athena. Athena has an owl, I believe, and it's for wisdom. Yeah, and there was some, something to do with that. I, re, I don't remember exactly, but it fit her at the time because she was preteen and was not acting the way she should or whatever. She'll kill me and cut that part out, please. <laughs> sure. But um but no, like she was she was petrified of them for a while. Oh, and me. and I never realized how silent they were. And I've I've had other experiences where the owls have been in the yard, um, that little black and white cat so teeny mm-hmm. and they cornered her on our porch before. And luckily I walked up because we didn't hear them in here. And it would have taken her away. Wow. Wow, that's unbelievable. Um so yeah, what anything interesting you've seen in the past this, this week? Yeah. Um, well, I've seen lots of praying mantises, which is not unusual this time of year. But yesterday when I was weeding out here, and I always think things like when this is happening, like this is really cool, I should share this with somebody, but I never want to break the experience. Mm-hmm. And if you got your phone out, you would totally break the experience. Um, and I was I was weeding over in this one bed and and the praying mantis just kept coming up and sitting on my shoulder. And I would take and put him down and because I was cutting back with pruners too. And I was so afraid of chopping him because mm-hmm. he blends right in. And, um, and I would put him down and I would go to a whole other area and he would come over to me and back on my shoulder. And it was really funny because, you know, I just was like, I can't get rid of this thing. And it doesn't creep me out at all. Like I, I'm so used to seeing praying mantises. We have tons of them here on the farm. And that one I do know because um, this happens again and again, not every year, but it happens, you know, every couple summers to me. Um, I get a little away from my normal nature routine and really sucked into the business. And it's really hard here because the business is in nature, but you can really end up working the business end and not taking care of your, your nature needs. And um, I love to walk and I love to sit in nature. I do sit spots and things like that. And I haven't been. We've, we've built a new store. We've been working on the love sign. I haven't been doing any of my nature time. I haven't been taking time to just, you know, sit and be in nature, meditate in nature. And what the praying mantis is, is about balance and about um, when they say that whenever the praying mantis shows up, that you probably need to do some Tai Chi yoga, something like that, and get or meditate in, in nature. Wow, that's fascinating. So I was like, okay, there's my sign. And wow. I you know, just kept moving on and didn't even question it. But I've, that one comes and goes a lot for me. Very interesting. And when I'm not paying attention, like one year the praying mantis just kept coming at night 
sitting on the window because at night's when I cook and I'd be sitting in the kitchen and he would sit on the window and just stare at me. Now, in, <laughs> now if you want to look at it scientifically, he was probably catching bugs that right, were coming to light. the light at night. Sure. But this always happens at a time and I have to reevaluate and say, yeah, I really haven't been doing my sit time and my sit time in nature is really important to me. Yeah. And why can't those things be both? Why can't it be? Oh, I believe they are. Yeah, exactly. I believe they are. I come from a family that doesn't believe in that stuff, so I kind of always try to justify. Sure, exactly. Um, Well, tell us, as you were just saying, tell us a little bit about the business and about the farm. So what do you do? So we do what we call products for whole living lifestyle. Um, It's, you know, strange marketing, I guess, but we don't know how else to explain. We do a million things on this farm, and we do them all because they're the things that we want in our lives. And we don't want to be just some mass producer of herbal tea um, because herbal teas are one of the things we do. And we don't want to just be the person that grows chickens and we do pigs and we do cows here on the farm. So we have pasture raised animals, good quality meats. And we teach classes and we do um, vegetables in the winter, but not in the summer. We only do vegetables for us in the summer so that we can focus on the tea line and the different herbs. And we teach a class called Whole Living. Um, that's a series of 12 classes uh, over a period of six months so people can come and see the farm through the different seasons and what all changes. Oh, that's and cool. I didn't a, realize that. Yeah, it's a gardening, an herbal medicine, and a food and, and semi-nutrition class. Um, we they we have the people actually build an apothecary over the summer. They take and they make about 60 projects, herbal projects that they mm. are building their apothecary and we're teaching the herbal medicine on a family-friendly level. The first year is very family-friendly. We have a year two, which is more, a little bit more um, advanced herbalism and body systems and things like that. But most people aren't ready for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spend um, a lot of time just getting people comfortable with the idea of how do you shop healthy? How do you find quality foods? What do they look like? How do you grow them yourself? How do you become more sustainable? And, um, we get all kinds of people. We get people who want to be completely sustainable and we get people who just want to grow a few things and they want to know where to shop. Mm -hmm. So to back up forest green farm, you've got meat, veggies, and then you have a serious herb farm. Right. And and I was wondering how many, like, do you, do you find a lot of other people do the, the herb farm? Because that seems so unique to me. I haven't really seen much of that. Um, no. Like the medi- I mean, there's like people who teach herbal farm. classes, but yeah. we also sell, I didn't say this, we also sell over 220 varieties of herbal plants. We sell um, flowers because a lot of people, a lot of people specialize in herbs or they'll specialize in natives or they'll specialize in vegetables. Um, we do all of those. And because it's part of what we call whole living lifestyle, like mm-hmm. we need the flowers to keep us happy and give us, you know, um, medicine from the flowers too. And, and, you know, to keep the bees pollinated and pollinating and the, um, butterflies and the moths. And then we do, um, the medicinal herbs. People do come all over the East coast to us for medicinal herbs cause we carry so many. And then we do heirloom vegetables cause a lot of our customers, we've taught them how to grow and they're like, I want these weird varieties I can't find anywhere. So mm-hmm. that we got into that. And I don't really, I know people doing plants and I know people who raise animals and I know people who do vegetables, but I don't know anybody doing all of them. Totally. And it's crazy because it's a lot of work to do, but somehow we do it all on a really small scale and it keeps us going. And it's what we need. And that's how we got into it is we started to, um, we moved here just to have a garden and raise kids on a farm. And yeah, we so loved- I saw that. I saw that in your bio that yeah. you decided to 
move towards this lifestyle when you're having kids. Right. Do you want to tell a little bit about that inspiration? Yeah, we what, didn't... What was What was life like before and then... What, life afterwards? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we had just... We were young. We just graduated from college. Um, and, and you said you were up in Pennsylvania? We were in New York at the time, in Rochester, New York. Okay. And we were right outside of Rochester, and we had our first garden. Now, we both had garden, families that gardened some, and... For me, I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm. It wasn't a working farm during my lifetime. It was a working farm before my lifetime. But they still had a lot of the principles of being self-sustaining. And I spent a lot of time there, and I'm really thankful for it because it really probably shaped who I was. I'm very different than my siblings and my parents. And um, yet my parents still like nature and everything. I don't want to take away from that. They definitely did help me with nature. But they they weren't worried about being self-sustaining. They were more part of the generations where they were building businesses and careers and whatnot. And so that always stuck with me. And I went through the period in college when I got out at a marketing degree and mm. I was working in more marketing and I hated it because I felt like everything was deceptive. Mm. And so we were in Rochester and Rob um, was getting his engineering degree and we had our first garden up there and we canned everything that summer. I couldn't get a job. It was during two recessions ago. Um, and it was a really short recession, but I couldn't get a job right out of college. And, um, so we canned a lot that summer and that was my first introduction to, Hey, you can not have to have a job and be able to support yourself with your own food and, and everything. And we really liked farmhouses. I really hated the weather in New York and said, we're moving South. And we ended up in this Charlottesville area because my parents had moved down here. And we went to visit them, and we were like, this weather's awesome. Now, that was May. This is So how did you convince Rob to kind of abandon the, the career mode after college to do oh, this he didn't, as well? He didn't abandon it. Um, he was still he was an engineer up oh. until um, 11 years ago oh, wow. when we started this business. He, he worked. He even, he, we just we found a place. I don't know if you believe in being called to place, but we came down here with kind of the idea that we'll look around for a place and— we looked with my parents because they actually wanted to invest in land and they wanted to develop land. And that was when developments were just starting and, you know, um, it was really, really a big thing. And so we said, hey, we really want a farmhouse. And this was when farms were not popular at all. And this is when farmhouse decor was not popular. If you go look anywhere now, everybody's turning their house into a farmhouse. Course, it's kind of yeah. funny. Um, Making them the fake rustic look. Yeah, but it's kind of cool at the same yeah. time, I guess. So, yeah. But anyhow, so we were like, we want to get an old farmhouse and we want to fix it up. And we could, and, that, and we were in our 20s. We were like, and that we could figure out how to afford because we couldn't. We wanted a big enough property to have a garden and maybe to raise cows one day. That was our ultimate goal. Raise children that could run around and not have to worry about streets. So the, and, it, the, at first it was focused on how to be self-sufficient for just for you two and your, and your future family. Right. Okay. And um, so we, we went and looked at tons of properties, gorgeous historic properties in this area. Because remember, my parents were thinking about developing their part and we were going to separate out the farmhouse and buy that. And... This was the, we were actually on our way back when they called us, and this was before cell phones. This was like, the, remember the first cell, you were probably not even born yet. The first cell phone in a car was gigantic, and it was plugged in, and they called us, and they said, you need to come back. The realtor said, you need to come back. He's like, he couldn't understand why we didn't like all the homes before, but we just, we were like, no, it's just not it. It's not it. We weren't going to do it if we didn't find what we were called to, and we definitely believed in that kind of thing, and we came to this property, and we were here a couple of minutes, and we were like, this is it, and, and everyone right. looked at us like we were nuts. And the realtor said, I just somehow knew it. Why? Because the house was so run down or what? The house was so run down. The property was run down. Interesting. Um, they were 
they they had gutted the house. The good thing is they had gutted the house and they had done. Um, it's it's a very old house. It's over two hundred years old, mm-hmm. and they had done new electric. So they had done the hardest part of it, and they were starting to put up you know the the new walls and everything. Um, but the yard itself was so run down. They had clear cut the woods, and um, that's a tree frog. <laughs> hey, hey, tree frog. <laughs> and so, um, so. I love it. We just walked in that, and the, the basement was mold, mm-hmm. was complete mold, and everybody knew even then, like how bad mold was. And we walked all through the house, and we looked at each other, and we walked outside, and we're like, "This is it." And it was like then we started spending time on the property, and we ended up doing an extended stay, and we said we want to go spend time on the property. And we didn't even know what we were called to. We were so young, we didn't know what we were called to, but we just knew like we got the feeling we were supposed to be here, and so we stayed and. And we went out through all the property because it had to match my dad's requirements, too, mm-hmm. because we were separating it out. And if he couldn't develop it, mm-hmm. then it wasn't going to be good for him. And we were gung-ho. We wanted it. Like, we, by the third day here, we were like, we are going to just have to go slow and steady because we're not going to be able to just fix it up overnight. We had, you know, Rob still had to find a job. Do you know the history of the house beforehand? Was oh, we're learning every week. It was so funny. Two weeks ago, someone came that used to live here and told us more about it. And um, we've been told things like, because um, there's Trevelyan's, um, there was the Trevelyan's Battle of Trevelyan's here. Okay, I'm not aware of that one. And that's it's, a civil it's war right battle? up the road. Yeah, it's a Civil War battle. And then there's a, a hospital in Gordonsville that's right on the railroad tracks. It was a Civil War hospital. They said they would actually bring people to this farm on the way to there and that it was used as a temporary Civil War Clinic, um, hospital? Yeah. Holy smokes. And then there's also the people the last weekend, and I have no idea if this is completely valid, but the people that lived here for a few years bef- before um, in the 1970s, they said that back in colonial times, this was also used for uh, like an inn on, on travel to Charlottesville. Oh my God, that's fascinating! And so, like he said, I heard that Custer stayed here, and like they were just like tell me all these people he's Local heard. Legends. That, you know, I'm just like, yeah. And he's like, I heard Thomas Jefferson. I'm like, who knows? You never know. But, but we just had this feeling. We find silverware around the trees all the time when we're when like we're doing things or digging new gardens. We find silverware. We find rusty old bolts. We find all kinds rusty of old tool, what? bolts and tools. Oh wow! Um, my son went through a phase where he would get you know he would get a radar detector and. And metal detector, and he would go through the yard and f- dig up stuff. And, oh my god! Do you have any ghosts um, in here? There, I yes, there is. <laughs> there is. We had we had some weird scenarios happen, but nothing negative. Which is funny because the people came two weekends ago. Um, I asked him about that, and he said, "Oh, there were some scary things. Not ours have never been scary." And he said, "The families who love the farm, the, the ghosts never bother them." Well, what has and happened? So we were in our beds. My son was only he was a baby, so he was under a year old. We were in bed. The cat was in bed with us. And something walked down the step. It was like a human. Our house is old, so it's creaky. And, uh, yeah. and someone walked down the steps. And Rob jumped out of bed, like, really fast. And he was running down because he thought he was chasing somebody, and no one was there. And it was in October when the veil is thin. So, wow. you know, we, who knows? And he couldn't get back to sleep because, like, that's how real it was to us. And he's not, he, he, you don't unnerve him that easy. That really, it seemed so, like someone was in there. And then he even got to the point he went outside and looked around because he was absolutely convinced someone was here. Wow. And, um... And then we, we, you know, we just laid back down. Neither one of us really slept well because we really felt like someone was there. And then it happened one other time within a couple of days of that. And then it never happened again. So fascinating. And, but it was definitely like there was someone there. Now we had one intern who insists that when she was here, um, and she's very, she's definitely on this really cool um, plane that 
that it, you know if somebody was going to connect with a ghost, it would have been her. Mm. Um, she insists there there is there was someone in our house that mm. was a ghost, and she saw them all the time. And I just kind of always chalked it up to yeah, well maybe, but. We never ever did I ever feel threatened or bad. I just wow. there's there's just really good vibes here and, and yeah I feel it. This by, by the way this property is so incredibly beautiful. Like I was telling you the other night while we were eating dinner, like to see a farm that's so well maintained and 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 just to see it in such beautiful like a show condition. You know it's just it's so beautiful. Your yard, all these trees, your herb garden, um, you know all the fields behind, and then the big wood. The woods back, I don't know, a few acres back. It's really yeah. so beautiful here. Yeah. And we worked in, we worked almost in the permaculture quadrants working our way out. Now, we don't really do true permaculture because permaculture people come and they realize like we do a version of it. We do our version. Um, but we worked in quadrants from the house out as we, as we fixed up the land. So everything was slow and steady. We're always trying to improve it and grow more things and, and, and see, see how we can improve the land. How did you, so at what point did you get into growing the medicine and, and um, the so that came so after we bought the after we separated out the property I'm going to go back to that if that's okay yeah um, we moved in and we spent the first couple of years fixing the house and having children we have two kids and um, and just spending time with our children here and raising a garden and we ne still never ever thought of a business ever and that we were going to become farmers or whatnot and we we sent our son off to school in kindergarten. And he was so used to being outside, he hated it. He really, really hated it. And it wasn't the best school system. And then it turns out he had a learning disability. And we were having trouble with him there. And they wanted him on medicine. And he was just miserable. And I went to the doctors. And this is, we were, you know, we were just normal people going, taking our kid every whatever to the doctors. And it really was life-changing for me when they just kept telling me to drug him up. He had auditory processing disorder, but they weren't, at, back then, they didn't really know, like, what they know now about it. What is that? And um, it's, auditory processing disorder is when sometimes you you can't process the information given to you. Hmm. Um, or you have trouble, like, his trouble was he could process what people said to him, but then when he had to write on paper, it was like anything that was a more than a two-step process didn't work for him. And anything... He would learn, like when he learned how to count to 100, he would know it for three weeks and then it was gone. And then they were trying to tell me he had ODD, was an oppositional defiance disorder, and I knew the child did not have ODD. What's that? Um, that's where, I'm, I'm probably not giving a correct term, but it's sure, where kids sure. are, are just angry and bad all the time. Okay. Um, and like everything you do with them is a defiance. And he didn't have that. He was frustrated. And so we ended up just bringing him home and homeschooling. We knew nothing about homeschooling. We had to learn about that. And in my process of learning about homeschooling, I met this wonderful doctor who, um, who, who was doing testing on him to help me determine what he had. And she said, he's auditory processing disorder. I really tell you to look into a nutritionist for him because you, it's usually a developmental thing in the brain that can be taken care of. And we can do IEPs for him in school. We can do all these things for him in school, but you're not going to change the underlying problem if you don't change that. And then I did meet with a nutritionist and we were giving him all kinds of vitamins because what, ha what happened was his body wasn't breaking down his food and taking the nutrients from it. And so I can relate all of this back to he was born in an emergency C-section that didn't need to happen in hindsight now mm. that I know that, um, that when I reached the 24-hour mark, they were done. They, they wanted a C-section. Um, I didn't know to give a baby probiotics if they're born C-section. 
And then when I was breastfeeding him, he was projectile vomiting because he had no good gut flora from the whole situation that went on, the emergency C-section. And he would literally, like, he could puke four or five feet away. It was just amazing. And then they told me to give him formula. And we gave him soy formula, which they now know is horrific. Mm. You know, we should not give children soy formula. Um, we messed up his gut so bad in that whole process. And we've learned wow. so much from this one child, you know. And um, so that made sense of why his brain never developed right, his gut didn't develop right. And we started giving him probiotics. We started doing the nutritional therapy with him. And everything was working really, really well. Like at first, Rob was not for this because we were, we were struggling. He was working an hour away as an engineer. He would drive an hour each way. And we were struggling money-wise to pay our mortgage and everything. And he just thought, this is crazy. And we're homeschooling. We're paying for our own school curriculum and everything. And then after like two, two months of doing this, we couldn't, he couldn't believe the difference in them. So then he was like, okay, let's do it. And my son was really into going to powwows and we were at a powwow with- What uh, were you actually doing differently? Um, we were giving him supplements. We were doing fish oil supplements. We were giving him vitamin supplements. We weren't trying to get it from food, which is now my big thing is, is getting things from food. But we were just doing what the nutritionists recommended and they, they usually work with supplements. And, um, and he was such a picky eater. She was like, don't worry about the food. Let's just do the supplements. And we went with that. And then when I was at a powwow with some Native Americans, they started asking why I wasn't doing herbs and why I wasn't doing food as medicine. And that was my first introduction to food as medicine. And they kind of took us under their wing um, a little bit. And then it really opened a door for me that, wow, there's all these nutritive herbs that we could make a tea for him. And I just forced him to drink it. He didn't really like it. And I said, you're, you know, I played the parent. I said, you're going to have to do this. And that's how our daily wellness tea, our number one selling product on this farm came about, was, the, was this nutritional tea based on nutritive herbs um, that are done in a long steep. And it's done so that your body doesn't have to do a lot of work and you can uptake the nutrition very easily. That's so beautiful. It's our number one thing when people come here and say, I'm not feeling well, we start them on. We're like, let's just start with a tea and see how you do. Because so many people... Without giving away a secret blend, what, right. what oh. is, what's in it? Um, nettle, nettle leaf, raspberry leaf, oat straw, um, red clover, and, a, and we have it with or without peppermint. Wow. And a little horsetail. Not a lot of horsetail, but just a little bit of horsetail for silica. And it was just a really well-blended formula. And now it's really well-known, but, you know, my son's 26, you know, 20... 20 18 years ago, nobody knew this. I mean, some people, Susan Weed knew this. I don't know if you know Susan Weed. I've heard, um, yeah, I know, I know But her there face weren't the herbalists that we have now. There was not the herbal community we have now. So this was just like all playing out something I would, would learn, you know, like over time. And, and um, so thankful that my son's interest took him to where we needed, you know, and, and we just were at that powwow that day and met the right person. That's really incredible. And um, so, so he started doing that. We started seeing a huge difference. And then we really upped the fish oil from the more research I would do. And the fish oil helped him. And so then what we found out was that nothing was going into his long-term memory in his brain. And then when he got the nutrition, all of it went into his memory. And, and he was just, he was able to do so much. It was amazing. And he knew the difference. And he was very young. He was only seven. And he knew the difference. And then he started trusting us to eat some of the foods and whatnot. Or I got really creative. Like when I would make spaghetti sauce, I would put all kinds of, you know, shredded up vegetables in there and cook it down. And we just would, you know, find the things he liked and we would get it into him one way or another. We'd find a way to sneak it into him. And as he got the nutrition, he wanted more good foods. It was amazing to see what he craved. And in no time, he was, he was almost all better. And he is still one of the best eaters I know. He, is, he loves food, and he cares about the quality of his food. 
And so from there, you started the herb garden for yourself. Right. And then when did it expand to maybe to selling herbs? And Um, because you said you have herbalists come from, you know, Richmond and which is what, an hour away? More? Yeah, Richmond's so an you hour. you have people coming from more than an hour away to yeah. come get fresh herbs from you. Yeah. Well, so, no, they come get plants from us so they can grow their own gardens. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. Oh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, so we, we mainly sell plants. Right. And Or we sell our dried teas and our dried herbal products. So we, um, I was just, so I was a stay-at-home mom and we were homeschooling and we needed money. So what I did is I, we had just the first greenhouse down there and I was growing for us. And then people would say, I heard you grow calendula because you couldn't find this at nursery, plant nurseries anywhere back I wanted then. to ask that. Yeah. Because I see you just selling stuff like uh, milkweed and sumac. It's like, there's no way you can find that in normal nursery. No, you can't. We're, and, and, you know, people come that don't know what we are and think we're crazy. But, you know, we've kind of now, you know, we're, we're, um, how many years, like 15 years into this business, we're known for it. But when we started, it was kind of scary because, you know, people would come and be like, what is wrong with these people? Right. Who sells sumac, you know? And um, so, but what we started with that is um, just selling some things to make some extra money. We weren't even technically a business. I just kind of had all these people I started meeting when it, like the doors just kept opening up, like, you know, oh, you know, herbalism, let's talk to you and, and talk about it. And a lot of the older people, and that was another lucky thing for us is, we're in a rural county, and all the older people, when they learned that we were here and what we were interested in, they flocked to help us. They wanted to see this us thrive on this farm and not leave because they got so sick of seeing all the kids leave and go off and do other things and leave farming behind. So we had so many mentors for vegetable gardening around here. I had so many mentors for canning and things like that. I have oh, so I many of my, my recipes come from, you know, old timers. I love that. And um, they just took us under their wing. And then all these herbal grandma type people, they don't call themselves herbalists. They were just doing what they were raised doing, doing folk herbalism, I guess is what you would call it, or community herbalism. Twelve years ago, we created the whole living class where we started teaching people because they were like, I love all this stuff, but I don't know what to do with it. So we actually formulated it into a program of um, 12, 12 days of learning over a period of six months. And it's a long day. It's a six-hour day in, uh, at the class. And uh, what do you teach in that? Um, we, that's the one where we teach herbalism mm-hmm. and we teach gardening and we teach the, the nutrition. Nice. And they make the projects and everything and take home. And it's just really hands-on. And we do a lot of garden walks where we just walk around and we look at things. We teach them how to – you see that I have circle beds, which is very unique here. Um, we teach them how we just take a plot of land – and what we learned is, you know, years ago, you would, you would have sprayed Roundup on it. You know, people would have, not us, but people would have sprayed Roundup on it or tilled it. We learned if we just scalp it down with a weed whacker and we put newspapers down and then we invest in some good compost and we top compost on top of those newspapers and we put a crop in that's going to break up the soil, which we usually put burdock in as our crop. And the burdock breaks up the soil and then we just harvest the burdock root in the fall. And meanwhile... The worms and the microbes just flock to this area to get the newspaper and break it down and all that good compost. And the animals, the, you know, the microbes in the soil and the worms do it for us. What do you do with the burdock? I've wanted to harvest that, but I haven't, haven't yet. Um, we dry a lot for tea. Okay. We stir fry it. Nice. Um, I freeze it and then I put it in soups. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I, I make burdock pickles. That. Oh, I'd like to Yeah, try I'll give you that, that recipe. Yeah, please. Well, I found it very inspiring. You know, I see a lot of people my age now, so in their 30s, that are starting the, like, husband-wife farm, like, farmsteading, homesteading. Mm-hmm. So, how long have you been doing it? It was 30-something years? 
Yes, we're we're about 30 years. Do you have advice for the young people that are coming into this trying to do something quite similar for their Start future families? Start slow and steady. Um, that's one of the big things we teach in our whole living class. Everyone wants to jump into what we're doing. This took us 30 years to get where we're at, and some days it's still extremely hard. Um, start slow and steady. And I, this goes to anything. This goes to nutrition, changing your diet. This goes to gardening. You have to make it manageable or you're going to walk away from it or you're going to become fanatical and you're going to burn yourself out. And so I see people who will put in, you know, this two acre garden the first year and they do a great job, but then they're completely burnt out. And they, they're like, it was too much work. People who put in little gardens or I tell people just to garden and in, in, we have these big troughs that we garden in, just start gardening in those and make, you know, do a few things the first year and see how it does, or just, you know, put in a small herb garden and, and make it a tea garden and harvest for your tea that summer and just start really small. Um, that's the biggest thing. Um, as far as farming goes, where I feel so bad for young farmers now is they can't afford land. When we bought this farm, nobody wanted a farm. We got this, we got this cheaper than the whole entire 28 acres we own, cheaper than you would pay for a development house today. Mm. Now we've invested in it over the years. Um, but I feel so bad because they have trouble getting land and, and they can't hold on to it. And sometimes they'll build soil for years and then the landlord's like, I'm going to sell the property. And then you just put all your investment into it and you have to walk away from it to secure good, um, good relationships if you can't buy land. That's, that's really difficult. How is it working with your spouse all day long? It was really hard in the beginning, I'll be honest, because I was the one at home, and mm-hmm. I had everything set up the way I wanted it, and I had control of the kids, because we homeschooled, so I had to farm and school, um, and then all of a sudden it became, we had to farm big time in school, and Rob's an engineer, and we have very different brains, um, and he would come in here, and he would like see systems that he didn't think were efficient, and that's what his job was. He was a, a maintenance manager, manufacturing engineer guy, and he would come in and try to redo everything I was doing, and so there was a lot of fighting when he first came in, Interesting, um, but then we learned just to work together because we had to. And like what he does so improves the systems to be effective and efficient where I'm more the creative and, you know, and the herby side of me is just out wondering and doing the herbal things and trying to plant them. And a lot of times he can't understand some of the plantings I do. And we both learned to give and take and we learned how to work together. And honestly, we, we don't see that much of each other because he's running the whole animal end of the farm. I'm running the whole herbal end of the farm. And now now what's helped a lot is we have our daughter-in-law, Skylar, working with us, and she's helping us run the social media and the marketing, and she's making the herbal formulas up for me that we've had established now. We used to both go in and try to do the herbal formulas at night, like make, package up our teas and everything, and that was crazy to work all day outside in the heat and then go in and do that, so we're so lucky to have Skylar with us. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I can just see visually that you guys have your own roles, so yeah. it's cool to see that you're you're locked into your own uh, daily job and routine. Right. Yeah. And you can see that you're more on, over here on the, on the herb and plant side of the farm. And Rob is going off into the, you know, into the fields where the chickens are. Yeah. And it's yeah, really our customers all know that about us. They'll come and they'll say, you know, can I walk out and see the chickens? And I'll be like, you know, I don't know where they're at right now. Let me call Rob because mm. it'll be maybe a week till I go out and see chickens, yeah. you know? Cool. Um, and we just try to define roles because it was when we were trying to do everything together in some ways, you were more efficient because there were two of you working it, but it it, it wasn't his, gardening isn't his thing, and the animals aren't my thing. Like I love the animals, but the part that we're going to kill them one day really isn't my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we give them a really good life and he's very respectful of them, but it's just, I don't like, I can't have that too close of a connection with it or it would start to disturb me. Yeah. 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 Well, I wanted to talk to Rob about that a bit because yeah. we just got our rabbits and I'm trying to kind of navigate that. We got a hummingbird like three feet from my head and uh, he is dipping his Heading bill petunias into, yeah, into the, the, um, the pipe of the petunias flower. Wow. Oh, yeah. he's holding on with his little, I've, he's upside down, holding on to one of the flower petals and balancing himself. Wow, that was cool. So hummingbirds are one of my spirit animals, and um, we've been known to have up to 40-plus hummingbirds here a year. Wow. Um, when the babies come out, they're just all over the place. They're not out yet. They're still in the nest. Um, I've got to hold hummingbirds. I went, Before we opened the farm up to the public, and it was just the kids and I working all the gardens and everything, um, Whenever I would turn a sprinkler on, I would let the kids run around the yard and I'd turn a sprinkler on. The hummingbirds would come out and play with them. They loved the sprinkler and they would come play with them. And if I would put my hand out like this, they, we have pictures of it. They would land on my hand. They were so in tune with us and they trusted us. Now that we have more cats and we have more people oh, on the sure. farm, it's very rare that I get to hold one. But I've but we, we get such trust with, with the hummingbirds. Can I tell you something really crazy? Huh. Hopefully you won't judge me too much. So... Living in the country, you very quickly learn that you just, for a male, that you go outside and you pee outside all the time. Mm-hmm. I've had hummingbirds come up to, while I'm peeing, come up to the stream and just hover in front of the stream. They love water like that. They'd yes. be a big surprise if they went yeah. in your pee, but yes. Yeah, they didn't quite hit it. But. <laughs> yeah, but they love water from a sprinkler. They love it. Yeah. Wow. They, and they talk, I don't know if you ever heard how hummingbirds, when they're playing, they talk and they chatter. Mm-hmm. And when you have a sprinkler running, they just all come out and they, it's like playtime for them. And so it was always so cute because my kids would be running and playing and the hummingbirds would be running and playing with them. So magical. We just, we'd see nature every day. It, it's amazing. Like the other day I was trying to count how many things I saw. I saw a little toad. I saw a black snake going through. And this is all while I'm just gardening, you know. Um, tons of birds. The birds are just all around us here. We we actually use the birds as part of our business. We um, we feed them very well during the winter and during the summer. We obviously feed them with the flowers and everything that's going on around here and all the grains from the fields that they can get, seed heads they can get. Um, but in the winter, we feed them intensively. And I don't know if you've noticed, we don't really have a mosquito problem on this farm. Fascinating. And um, the birds take care of it. We also have the black locust trees here and the Chinese beetle, the little elongated Chinese beetle defoliates locusts all throughout Virginia. You're driving down by August and usually see the locust trees that look kind of like how the Japanese beetles ruin trees. Um, the birds keep that in check for us. We see those those Chinese beetles here, but the, the birds are all up in there. And we have hollowed out old trees on this farm. So we have a lot of different kinds of birds and ducks that live in the trees. Running a farm and transitioning to being a no-spray organic farm. Now, we're not certified organic because we don't want to do the whole government thing. We, you know, we, we believe we're never going to get so big that we, our customers don't know us and our customers can't walk the farm and ask us questions. We have an open farm policy. You can go through our sheds. You can go through our barn. You can look for chemicals. We don't have them. Um, and if we do have anything that might be a chemical, it is certified organic and it's probably never sprayed, but it's there for in case of an emergency if something came up. You know, like One thing we never want to get on this farm is whitefly. If I ever saw white flies, I'd probably use some pyrethin on it. Um, but we use beneficial insects. 
And I had somebody who mentored me in beneficial insects. Um, after a convention, a farm convention I went to, I was like, hey, I really want to switch to this. I had taken master gardener training and master gardeners have gotten much better. So I'm not ripping on master gardeners just so we know that up front. Um, but master gardener training was a lot of chemicals or organic chemicals. And I don't even like organic chemicals because they still kill all of the, you know, the beneficials and they deplete the soil and everything. And I don't, and we run a well, we don't want stuff going into our groundwater. So there's organic things like, like pyrethrin would be one. Um, it's basically based on the pyrethrin daisy and it, it's a pretty good um, chemical at, at killing insects on plants, but it also kills the beneficial insects. It also has a toxic level to humans as a neurotoxin, if you, you, if you get it. And, but it's considered organic. Um, and I don't want to use those things. I, we, we, you know, we have beneficial bees. We have beneficial butterflies. We have the little hummingbirds that could kill them. We have cats running around that it could hurt them. Um, so I don't want to use those things. And a lot of people don't realize when you get organic food, there is a whole list of what they call OMRI-approved Chemi organic chemicals you can use. Now, they're made from natural compounds, but like the pyrethrin daisy, it is still toxic and that's how it kills. Um, so switching over to that was really, really difficult for me um, because I was using some things. Actually, I grew up on, on my, you know, my grandparents' farm. He used seven dust to keep Japanese beetles out of things. And obviously I don't use seven dust because if you take a look behind you at my one tree, the linden tree, the Japanese beetles are all over it. I can't reach them to get them and drown them in some water and they're taking over that area. But I learned there's tolerance levels that we just will put up with certain things to not use chemicals. And, um, but it was a struggle in the beginning. It was a really big struggle. And I used to have a lot of roses on this farm. I now only have roses that do really well in Virginia without chemicals. But I used to have English roses and all kinds of roses and you can't grow them in the humidity down here without using some kind of fungicide um, on them. And I didn't want that in my yard anymore. I didn't want my kids to have that. And, and so some things I just got rid of the plants that didn't work without using chemicals. And I found this man who's like, you need to learn about beneficial insects. And he was teaching me, and we had a lot of them. Like we, all, we have tons of praying mantises naturally and, and they do a good job now. They eat good and bad, but they do a good job of keeping bad things in check. Um, and I had, I, he was mentoring me on certain things and we had one year, we had a ton of grasshoppers, but I wasn't thinking much of it except for that we were having a problem on our retail space, which is right next to a field. The retail area where we keep and sell plants is next to a field and they were jumping onto my plants and devouring them. So like it was starting to get annoying, but it was almost the end of plant season. So I was just like, okay, let's hope it's better next year. But if anybody knows anything about grasshoppers, it'll continue to, they'll continue to um, produce more. And so... Um, I was standing on, on top of the hill here and looked out and I saw this swarm come across and I thought it was going to be a swarm of bees because we see that frequently and it comes in like a black cloud and you can hear them buzzing and I didn't hear any buzzing and these big black bugs came in and landed on a whole row of Swiss chard I had and, and, they, and there were just thousands, thousands of them and I looked at them closer and I went in and got my beetle my beetle book and I'm like, oh, this is blister beetles. I've heard about these, you can't squish them. So anybody who's an organic farmer or a, a no spray farmer, you squish a lot of bugs. You see something on a plant, you're not waiting to go get something and drown it in the water. You just squish it, you become a squisher. And um, I knew not to squish them because if you squish a blister beetle, it will actually cause a, their, their bug juice will, their insides will cause a blister on you. 
So luckily I looked it up and learned that, but there, there were just thousands of them. And I called him right away and I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do for this one? I'm going to have to get chemicals out. And he, you know, he said, send me a picture. I sent it to him. He confirmed it. it was blister beetles. He said, we need to think about this. This man just changed the whole way I think. He said, we need to think about why are they there? They came in for a reason. And he said, they're going to eat your Swiss chard, but you need to start thinking about what is there that they're going to eat that you need to get rid of. What are they going to do? There's something there that drug that drew them to you. And then he started naming things like, do you have a lot of this? Do you? And he said, grasshoppers. And I said, I have tons of grasshoppers this year. It was insane. You would just walk and there were grasshoppers everywhere. He said, blister beetles eat grasshopper eggs. He said, you're going to have to sacrifice that crop to them. He said, and probably some other things, because when they're done devouring that, they're going to go devour something else. And they did. They went through and devoured a few things of my crops that summer. And I trusted them. I was like, okay, you're mentoring me. I'm going to trust you. And it was hard. I can't tell you how many times I walked over and thought, I'm going to spray something on these. And this is when we were making the transition to no spray. And the next summer, we barely had any grasshoppers. It took me, though, nine months to see the results of all of that and all the destruction that that one beetle did. But that's nature at work. If you can create balance, you can create a system that's not full of chemicals, has good soil, has everything here, the systems work themselves out. And we see it all the time. You've seen, since you've been here, how many frogs we have. Think about how many of the bad things frogs eat. We don't, like for raising, you know, raising as many chickens and cows and pigs as we do, you don't smell it. You don't see flies everywhere. I mean, we have some flies, but not, not horrific like you would picture on, a, on an animal farm. Took about two years there not to be any blister beetles here. And I haven't, like this summer, I haven't seen a blister beetle yet, knocking on some wood. Um, but it, it was like they were here for a while and they left. They came and they, they cleaned up this area and got what they needed and they moved on. See, we teach this all the time when we teach classes because we're not just herbalists. We teach the whole herbalist, you know, folk herbalism that we need to look at the whole mind, body, spirit because that's, you know, illness is coming from within when there's problems. It's not just something like when people say they have psoriasis or eczema, it's usually a gut issue. It's usually something so much bigger than just a skin issue. Um, and we try to like start talking diet, but the same thing with gardens. I mean, if, if people are having a lot of problems with plants, they say, we need to look at your soil. And Rob will be the one to talk about that. Rob loves soil. Rob has soil talks. He has soil classes. Um, where I work on the gut biome, he works on the soil biome. And and it's just, he could, he's just loves soil science so much. And he gets all of our gardens. That's where the engineer in him is so wonderful. Like he's always testing the soil and fixing, fixing it. And then we don't have a lot of problems with our plants with insects because the plants are healthy. And so when people come to us and say, we're having all these problems, whether it's disease or insects or whatnot, invading their plants, we start to look at more at their soil. And nobody, nobody likes that though, because that's just like humans. Like we've got to fix the bigger problem and it's going to be more work. And it's, nothing's easy. But that's, that's the, you know, for a, for a nature story, it's not, you know, it's not the, the most extravagant nature no, story or whatever, but it was my, mo- it was one of my best learning experiences because. I love that. Um, it was just watching nature work and me, me learning to have the trust. So when I teach um, in our whole living classes, when I teach our class about um, chemicals and pesticides and why we're not going to use them, and I teach about beneficial insects I teach everyone that you have to have a tolerance level. You can't have perfect. And that's the number one thing I think that people need to learn is nothing's ever perfect. We know we're going to have losses every year on the farm. We know that we're never going to not have in, bad insects on the farm. There has to be a balance in there of the two. And you have to create a tolerance level that you're willing 
to tolerate till you react. Because a lot of people see one little flawed leaf and they're ready to spray, you know, fungicide on something and they or they start panicking. And and nature is chaotic and wonderful and it works in it works itself out. It, it works to be this beautiful thing that's chaotic and and you can't you can't define it. That's the thing that everybody wants to define everything mm-hmm. and you just have to accept it for what it is. Um, you know, we're talking about spraying plants and I've witnessed people who I think are kind of angry towards their plants and um, how I wonder if the plants can tell because the harvest has never been very successful. Whereas I see other people like my mother who's outside talking to her plants. Her herb garden is like exploding to life and, you know, she clearly is loving her plants and you can see it. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on just the, you know, without sounding too quote unquote woo woo, just mm-hmm. the, what, what you're giving energetically to your plants. Right. Um, and, and one of the things for us that I think why people come to us versus, because there's a whole Western herbalism world that's very prominent right now and all kinds of teachers out there teaching. And for many people, it is too woo woo for them though. I don't think it's woo woo. Like I don't believe woo woo is a thing, um, but it is for a lot of people who are transitioning out of mainstream thinking and not connected with nature yet to know that there's these daily interactions with nature and ourselves. Um, but that's why people come to us because we don't, our first year of class, we don't, put that out there that much till the end of class when we've built a relationship with our customers and and the people in our classes that to understand that part of our success is our energy with these plants. And when I first started gardening and and farming, I wasn't even aware of that. We just were lucky we had good energy on this farm. Um, But when we talked about Rob coming into the business and whatnot, um, there was a lot of frustration in the beginning. And I started noticing when I was working with plants, like certain plants weren't doing as well. And my energy was bad for a while there. Like I was what frustrated. Does that mean? Like I was frustrated. So I energetically was putting out frustration. Um, and it would show up in my gardening. And then I started to realize this correlation between, you know, here I was this carefree, happy person before, and now I'm frustrated some. And then, um, and then as we worked things out, I noticed it getting better. And then as I got more in tune with the medicine of plants, which just over every year just got more immersed in, in herbal medicine, um, I realized the plants were talking to me and I was so uncomfortable with that. I was very uncomfortable. Like that was woo woo to me at the time. And I didn't want to accept that. And I wouldn't really pay attention to it. And I'd be like, no, that, that's, that, that plant didn't talk to me. Like that wasn't, you know, that way. And one of my, my best plants was not a typical medicine plant was, um, the little fleabane daisy. And this little plant is a weed and terrifically around here. And I would take people out to nature journal and classes and this little plant would always talk, would be like, notice me over here. I'm the little sister. Notice me over here. I'm the little sister. And I'd hear this over and over again. And I'd be like, I am not comfortable with this. This plant is not saying this, but where would that come from? And, um, and so you mean that you would be around this plant and you'd have these intuitions. Yeah, this, this, this stuff would come into my head that this plant was saying this to me. And, I, and it was just, it was there. But I was like, this is not possible. This is not possible. And I was really uncomfortable with it. And I didn't used to believe in things like flower essences. Like I believed in constituent medicine um, and things like that. But that, I mean, it's completely changed for me now. Like over, over the 20 years I've been doing this. And so, so that, that kept popping up every time I was around this plant. And then I got to the point where I was just like, okay, you're just, you're making this up or whatever. And one day when we were doing some nature study with my son, we were reading a Native American book 
that talked about the flea bean daisy being the little sister to the oxeye daisy. And I was like, oh, my God, there it is. You know, like the, I wasn't creating that. This plant was telling me I'm the little sister, but nobody pays attention to me. And so then I started researching the medicinal uses of the oxide, I mean, of the um, flea bean daisy. And it has lots of minor medicinal uses. And it just wasn't used as much as other herbs. And it was just incredible because this plant talked to me. And then once I was open to that, it was amazing as I was going around, like I would be going around doing things and the, this plant would be like, I need water. And here the sprinkler, because we have our system set up on drip irrigation or sprinkler, the, we would be in a dry spell like we are now. And the sprinkler was missing a plant, like the way the rotation went. And the plant would tell me. And that was weird. I mean, it still is weird to me, but mm -hmm. it, it's real. Like it, it definitely does. Um, and other times I'll be out with people who are here and they're, they're telling me problems they're having. And I'm like, let's take a walk through the garden and the plants will talk to them. And that's, what's mm. really cool to see when they're like, what is this plant? And, and so the wild dagger we talked about earlier, my mother-in-law does not believe in herbal medicine at all. And she will tell you that. And she keeps being called to this wild dagger and she has a back pain so bad she can barely move, but she will not take it, but she is called to that plant. And she even admits that plant calls to me. I, I, I can't stop thinking about it. And when she's here, she wanted to walk over to it and see it. And plants just call to people and, and they need them or they just show up in their backyard. Like I've had that where people are telling me, you know, this is what's going on. And we've tried some remedies with them. And I'm like, what's in your backyard? And they'll be like, oh, I have tons of mullen in here. We'll try mullen. And mullen is known for respiratory issues, but I've had it work for so many other things for people. And we don't see clients. We just kind of... Um, we offer a store full of herbal remedies and we kind of direct people and we let people, I'm really big on let, tuning people into their intuition, into their connection with the plants. And let's, let's go for the walk in the garden and see what you need. And these are traditionally what we would use for this, but is there anything that we're walking? And when we first started out, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people weren't open to that. I see a huge change in people and they're not just herbally people like we see a huge change where people are starting to understand that there is this intelligence in plants and in nature and that, in ourselves in, in ourselves yes. in our intuition yes my god yeah and so it's it's really interesting to to once you learn that the plants do communicate it opens up so much i mean you're not sitting there having a back and forth conversation it's just these a flash but, of insight. Yes, and it's just there, and you can't deny it. How did you feel when that book connected, when that book connected the Native American use Story. to your intuitive experience? Were you freaked out, or were you no? I was just like, oh, thank God! Like I, n I know I'm not crazy, it's your proof. and I'm not projecting this because I always worried that I was projecting it. Because, like I said, I wasn't raised this way. They all think I'm loony, um, and I knew I wasn't projecting it. It was just like there it is. It is, it is real. I'm not just making this up and projecting what I think I want it to say. And, God, and that awesome. one was just so profound. I've had tons of other experiences like that, but that one was just so, so profound that like, I couldn't have come up with that idea on my own. This plant was communicating that to me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I love that. What's another one? Um, well, a lot of times I won't know where to put a plant. And I'll walk around the yard and I'll be holding it and it will tell me where it wants to be. And because I don't plant out gardens, these gardens happen by that way, by me, me taking plants. And, and even if I have to take a whole flat and walk around with it and be like, where am I going to put this? Um, 
So that happens frequently to me where I'll hold the plant and decide where it's going to be. And a lot of times it will be in a location where it shouldn't grow. Calendula is one. A lot of people, when you read in books, calendula grows in full sun, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And I kept planting it in full sun and it wasn't doing well. So I'm like, well, where do you want to be? And I took a flat of calendula around and I put it in 80% shade. And it does so much better for us on this hot farm in the 80% shade. And the plant told me where it wanted to be. And it made no logical sense if you're looking at a farming or a gardening book that that plant should be in that kind of shade. And it produced more flowers and more resinous medicinal, you know, medicine in it. That is so cool. And I'm so, I'm sure that's so interesting for people to hear. Do you have to get yourself into a certain headspace to be able to hear, to get those intuitions? You definitely do. Like, you know, you can't be, you can't be in a bad mood. You can't be thinking about other things. We're very present in what we do. Um, and that, that's the things that help us like with Rob, with the bees and everything like that, he has to be present in what he's doing that very moment so that he's so aware of his surroundings. Um, we try not to let other things when we get outside and we're uh, and doing our day, we try not to hold on to things like say you had a fight with your mother or something or a sibling. I try not to even let those thoughts come to my mind when I'm out working with the plants, because I feel like I'm projecting it out there on all this, this living life. Like they're part of us and we're part of them. And, um, I just, I I try really hard to let things go. I don't hold grudges anymore. Um, there's just so much that's changed in our, in our lives, living in nature the way we do. Um, I don't hold on to anger. Like I watch people who get so angry over the littlest things and I don't even understand it. It's, I, I don't have that in me anymore. And I, it's just not good for me. It's not good for the plants when I'm working with them. This is super fascinating. This yeah. adds another level. It's something you know? that people aren't comfortable talking about, and I never, never, ever was comfortable until about a couple of years ago. And then I love in my classes now that when I talk about it, the people who will go, oh, thank God. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? And they'll be like, I'm just so happy to know that, I, that somebody else thinks this because I, I – and these aren't like – these aren't herbally – herbal teachers or, you know, people who are in herbal community crowds. These are people, everyday people who are taking our class that have been called to all of this, but they don't know what to do with it. And somebody just say that, and intuition's another one, telling people, what does your gut say? You have an intuition and you need to not let go of worrying about what you think it's supposed to be. What does your intuition say? And that's one of the biggest things we do in our classes is help build intuition, um, acceptance from people, because we are so taught that not to use our intuition. We are taught from the time kids enter school. To think, to only yeah, think. Right. Up in your head. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or not to think, at period, just to do, be a robot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's really nice to see people when they have a gut instinct, accept that, that, you know, this is what I know. In our year two of our classes, we do a lot of energetics with herbs in that class because herbs are often defined as this herb does this and that herb, you know, fixes this remedy and, and that type of thing. Um, but everybody's body and constitution uses the herbs differently. And we spend a lot of time working individually with each person doing herbal tastings and energetics with herbs to decide which ones are for them. And that has really been life-changing for a lot of the people who have taken our classes because they're also taught that we have to learn the book study of herbalism. And we are just, we're not about that here. We're about what is, what is your connection with those plants and with those herbs and then determining how they're going to work for you and which ones you need. So yeah, I just spoke with your wife, Krista, and this is Rob. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience with, with the farm. Um, 
Boy, I don't know. Well, how I like to so how I like to start these podcasts is with country small talk, <laughs> and so what I've noticed is people in the country talk about the animals that they've seen or the yeah. weather or plants. So right now, it's all about the heat. It's it's a scorcher, <laughs> huh? It is a scorcher. Um, we spent a lot of our days taking care of the plants and animals, and I mean, just in the time that you and Crystal were up here, I spent you know two rounds around the farm checking on everything. And you run more of the, of the, she does more of the plant side, you do more of the animal side. I do, I do. So my, uh, uh, I guess, custodial part of the farm is, entails more of the 80 acres where hers is, you know, all con, consolidated into about an acre or two here. And you're doing pigs, chickens, cows? Yes. Um, laying hens and meat chickens. That's right. Yeah. And you got turkeys. So, and, and I just got turkey poults in, so we'll raise them between now and Thanksgiving. Nice. Yeah. And you mentioned you grew up in Pennsylvania. Were you doing like a homestead lifestyle like this or was it very different? No, nah, it was quite different. Um, I grew up, up well, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in town, but, you know, somewhere early on in my childhood, we moved um, up into what we call the mountains. Um, there's a lot more family up there. Uh, we actually moved into my grandparents' home. Um, it was right at the base of a mountain, had a trout stream with native brook in it so we grew up well I, I should say i did my my brother didn't take so much to the to the woods and the nature as i did but um myself and and one of my cousins we kind of grew up we were pretty close in age and kind of grew up as brothers and spent all our time in the woods whether we were fishing or hunting or you know we we were pretty young at the time so we weren't toting guns around in the woods but we took you know took up with uh bow and arrow and slingshots especially that was what were you getting with those um i actually did quite a bit of rabbit hunting with the slingshot um mostly chipmunks cool. um so you know it was did uh, you, would you eat the chipmunks no no okay. no they were they were too small rabbit hunting was for for meals and we did it during the season um we were just uh, a little bit young that our parents weren't crazy about us going out with guns and ammunition by ourselves unless you know somebody older was with us but uh you know if i just wanted to go out after school and we had beagles at the time so we were you know pretty hardcore rabbit hunters and uh we'd take the beagles out and just take the slingshots out we were that's so we'd cool. gotten that good with slingshots that's impressive in the first season i, I still have the slingshots and um it's kind of a i don't know it's an unusual story that um my father worked at a SKF bearing factory, so he would bring home in his lunchbox these ball bearings. They were throwaways. I mean, you know, they would sell them for scrap metal, but they were not quality. You know, they, they measured them in microns, which is very tiny um, standards. And um, if something didn't meet, you know, their quality standards, they'd throw them into drums and recycle the steel and. So essentially they were garbage to them and my dad would bring us home coffee cans full of these ball bearings. And it took us a little while, but we narrowed down to the exact size, which is five sixteenths was the ideal ideal size to shoot with a slingshot and, and we were we were deadly with them. I mean, anything within thirty yards we could we could take out. That is impressive. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a five sixteenths ball bearing, so you know, it was anything bigger than a rabbit, it really didn't do much to. But. So for me for the uninitiated, like is that about a normal marble? 
Uh, no, it's probably half the size of a marble. Okay. Um, probably closer, maybe slightly bigger than a pencil eraser. Probably oh. A better way to picture it. Interesting. So quite yeah. small. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. That's so cool. So, you know, when when you were young and didn't have a lot to do and, you know, you could only fish so much because it had gotten to the point where that's, well, I don't want to jump off a subject, but we could only fish so much. So we would go off in the woods with the slingshot and just try to take out any chipmunk that we could find because, I mean, the, the mountain was just overrun with chipmunks. It's not like it is down here. Interesting. I mean, you know, our backyard might have 25 or 30 chipmunks in it. When you were growing up? When we were growing up, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, down here, they just don't have the chipmunks around. But So uh, exterminating chipmunks from the mountain, nobody really cared. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were just rats or rodents to everybody. <laughs> so did dad or granddad hunt as well? No, my family didn't. Um, my my like I had two uncles that hunted, and and a bunch of my cousins. We all kind of lived in a vicinity of each other. Um, they all hunted, and I I took it up with them, and and uh, so you know, kind of started out typical family stuff where the uncles, the older ones, taught us how to hunt and process animals, and and as they got older, as as the younger ones, myself and my cousin, and well, several of my other cousins, as we got. To where we were proficient in the woods and knowing our way around, we took care of the uncles. Um, For sure. You know, it, it definitely got to be a tradition of, you know, in Pennsylvania, there's a opening day to hunting season. And, you know, that was a big deal. And we obviously all took off school. And, um, you know, it was a lot of planning. And we would hike up into the mountain. You know, sometimes it might be a two-hour walk. This so. is on public land or? Um, kind of. Some of it was public. Some of it was private. Um, but back then, I don't really know who owned the mountain. Interesting. But, um, now we kind of do, and you know, back then it was just, I don't know, thousands. Of, it seemed like thousands of acres. Wow. And this was for deer? Um, yeah, deer. Okay. Uh, there were some bear up there, but we didn't really hunt them. There wasn't enough. We, I mean, back on the mountain, we'd hunt, you know, squirrels, obviously chipmunks, but we didn't do anything with the chipmunks, but... Um, squirrels, rabbits, grouse, um, deer, and, and there was other stuff, but, um, you know, that was what was in abundance to, for us to hunt. Sure. And I've, I heard you mention you, you, you do a bit of trapping with your son. Did we you do. start, did you start that up in Pennsylvania as no, a kid? No, we, we started that here. Um, my son had an interest, um, interest in nature. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Chris will talk quite a bit about our kids, so I oh, hope yeah. I'm not overlapping things, but, um, my son had quite a bit of interest in nature, but I didn't really see where he had an interest in killing or harvesting things. Mm -hmm. So we kind of steered him more towards, you know, like I always would tell him, I don't care if you carry a gun, you can carry a camera. Totally. You know, this, this, I always felt like the success in being out in nature is seeing the wildlife, not necessarily harvesting it. Mm -hmm. I mean, harvesting it has a whole nother purpose in life. And it's not for everybody, um, and, and even still, I enjoy it's a having. Much, it's a much more intense relationship. Yeah, I, I enjoy having the the meat and stuff to to eat throughout the year, but it's not the exciting part of being out in nature for me. It's it's kind of like, you know, I look forward to seeing everything and 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 the the success of finding the patterns and seeing the animals when I hope to see them, and and it's kind of like, okay, well now I gotta complete the task and put this thing in the freezer. But um, for my son, we kind of started gearing him towards trapping and, and camera taking, to picture taking and stuff. And um, 
I didn't know anything about it. I mean, we did a little research and of course we homeschooled. So researching and learning on our own was a pretty typical thing. Um, but we did, I took them to a class and, and we kind of did a certain, I don't know if it was really a certification process. But, was that was that with the Virginia Travers Association? Um, might have been. Because um, I went to, I went this season, I went basically to the bottom of Virginia along the, you know, the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah. And they were doing a fur handling class. And so I met some of the guys who were in the Virginia Trapping Association. And I took the class with um, people who, with actual game wardens like with okay. conservation police officers yeah, yeah. who are learning how to trap. It was fascinating. So I wonder, because I know they do a lot of the education here in Virginia. Yeah, the, the guy that we took the class with, he's local here, here in Louisa, and okay. um, I guess he's considered a professional trapper, and, and he does some of the gun safety classes for the Department of Game and Inland Fishery, I guess it is. And um, I don't really know if the class was put on, I don't remember, it was so long ago, mm-hmm. if he put it on, but he was part of the Virginia Trappers Association. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, did some training for for the, you know, Department of Game and Inland Fishery, so I don't really know what it was affiliated with, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was a good local class, and, and um, we learned a lot, and it kind of gave us uh, enough information and confidence to kind of jump into it and get started. And you were doing land trapping or water trapping? We were just doing land trapping. Okay. Um, yeah, we haven't gotten into There are some beavers back here. Um, they've never really caused us a problem. I've never really had a desire to eat one, so we yeah. just kind of never went that route. My girlfriend and I, we ate five this season. Yeah. They were quite delicious. We cut away the fat, and it, it just tastes like beef. Yeah, I, um, I think my, if I remember right, my son caught one somewhere along the way in a foot trap, and we ended wow. up killing it. Huh. And um, we did skin it out and try to do something with the skin, but I just remember it being really oily and oh, greasy. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, and the whole time I was doing it, I'm thinking, how in the world does somebody eat this thing? Sure. But So, uh, wait, so what what species were you two trying to trap for? Um, mostly what we see out here in the pasture, foxes. Okay. Um, and does this also have an element to do with... Um, you know, the predators for your farm? It does now. Predator um, management, yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, we kind of started out as a learning thing and, and, you know, get my son into nature and without, you know, necessarily killing things. And we made sure we bought the right traps that weren't going to hurt the animals. And Yeah, so for people listening, there are, there are foothold traps that the right kinds that are offset or padded right. or laminated, it, it actually does not hurt the paws at all. Yeah. And you could trap your, your pet and release it and there'd be no problem. And we have done that. And that was our primary concern is with all the livestock guardian dogs that we use, um, we do have offset traps and, and we want to make sure we weren't going to hurt the animals. So, you know, it, it, it's, it was important for us to, to be able to make that decision at the time we find the animal as to whether it needed to be killed or let go or whatever. And, um, and we have caught our own dogs in it before. And no effect, no, no ill effect. No, none at all. None at Fascinating. all. Fascinating. Um, you know, we we spent a lot of time getting to know trap sizes and those kind of things. So that was part of the reason why we kind of stopped at fox size. So it's not going to do a very good job of trapping our dogs because the foot size is too big. Um, but I did catch two of the toes in one of the traps of one of our dogs. Hmm. And it was in the middle of the night, and it made sure it let us know that it had a problem. Howling like how? Yeah, it was way back in the field, and it woke both of us up. So, you know, wow. midnight on a winter night, I'm out there going to find out why my dog's howling in the woods. Now, were you, were you going for the red fox or the gray fox? Um, there's mostly red around here. We didn't really care. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of gray, especially since the coyotes moved in. We 
you know, I probably haven't seen a gray fox in 10 years. Oh, fascinating. We've got a lot where we are in the mountains. Yeah. They're much smaller too. Like they half, are. half the size maybe. They are. Um, um, but yeah, it seemed like I, I had heard, I don't know for sure, but heard that the coyotes tend to prey on the gray fox more than the red. Okay. Maybe the gray fox just has a different pattern or something that, that you know, the coyote that, that overlap with the coyotes territory or something. I don't know. But um, since the coyotes have been here, I haven't seen a gray fox. Interesting. Anywhere. And did you end up using any of the pelts or doing anything with the fox? Um, no, I mean, we've, um, some of the, most of the ones that we trapped, my son let go. He, mm-hmm. he didn't have any interest in killing them. A few of them we did harvest and play around with, with tanning the hides and stuff. Um, most of them we didn't do a very good job on, so they looked nice for a little while, and we kind of either hung them up in my shop or they never really turned out nice enough to display in the house. Yeah, I'm, I've, I was shocked trying, well, I wanted to mention, you're the first person I've met other than at the class that actually traps. I've met so many hunters out here in the country, but trapping is like its own tiny niche thing. It, it is, but it can and, be very effective if, if you need it to be. Right, and I've, you know, finding without having any mentors, finding out how hard it is to properly flesh, even though I took a class, like to figure out how much you got to remove before you spoil it. And if you don't flesh enough, I guess the fats, I think it's the fats will make the hair slip. And so the first thing I caught, the first thing I ever caught trapping was a raccoon in a foothold. And I, that was a, it was kind of a harrowing experience to have to shoot something from that close up was not very nice experience, especially because I didn't do it very well. Um, that's a whole story in itself that I told on this podcast. But um, yeah, when I ended up fleshing, it, it's like, I have no idea if I'm fleshing enough to preserve it. <clears throat> but I just last week mailed out my hides from this season to get tanned. So yeah. I, I did all the fleshing and the boarding and drying, but then I sent them out to a tannery. Yeah. That, that was the other problem. There was a tannery here close by. Oh yeah. And um, we actually took the kids, the homeschool kids, we kind of had a group that we kind of did some things with, and we took a group of homeschool kids to the tannery, and I, I took them for that outing. And um, of course, they use a lot of machinery and chemicals and stuff, but it just made it look so easy. And and you know, the once or twice that we spent down in the barn, you know, sweating to death trying to get this thing right and holding it, and without the right equipment and the right knives and the right tools, it, it it was really tough and to watch these guys do it and they charged, you know, some ridiculous amount, five or ten dollars to do a small hide. Oh yeah. It seemed kind of ridiculous oh, to, yeah. to I continue just, on with that ourselves. Yeah, so I when I started trapping the season, I thought like I don't want to do this for profit because I thought yeah. it's kind of gross to kill animals to make money. But now that I've sent five hides to a tannery, it's like that cost me $150. So it's like if I'm gonna keep doing this I don't know. Maybe I will sell the hides to people who are interested in making hats and kooky clothes and stuff like that. That'd be really cool. But yeah, that's something to think about. Yeah, uh, changing topics. Is there a certain animal here that you like working with more than the other ones um, that you feel drawn to? No, nah, not really. I, I enjoy the mixture. Okay. Um, I enjoy. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 it can be a chaotic collaboration sometimes to, to to mix the cattle and the chickens and the pigs but when it's all working great it's really enjoyable but when you have problems it's it's can be a nightmare because one can throw the other one out of sync and all of a sudden it's a domino effect of problems sometimes but um you know like right now with the heat and the, making sure everything stays enough water mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 things can go chaotic really quick mm-hmm. 
Um, but um, but no, I, I, it's there's not really any one you know type of animal or breed to enjoy the most. Um, I mean, I, the the cattle are kind of the most majestic because they're out there and they really nice to watch. Chickens aren't so enjoyable to sit back and look at; they just kind of look like chaos running everywhere. Do you? Do, do you feel that they have different levels of sentience? Um, well, what, what, I guess, what do you mean by? I don't know. Yeah. Like, do you have any feelings with, um, you know, what's going on inside of the cow as it compared to what's going on inside of the chicken? Not really. I mean, they just care about food. Right. Um, you know, we, we, every day is about the animals you know for for me i run more of the animal part of the farm like we mentioned earlier and, and my wife krista does most of the plants and i mean we kind of overlap in some areas but um every day i come out i'm looking at indications of nature i'm looking at the bugs i'm looking at the color of the grass i'm looking at the health of the pastures i'm looking at the trees i'm you know as soon as i walk out of the house in the morning first thing i do is listen and I'm listening to the dogs, the chickens, the cows, the pigs. I'm listening for anything that's going on. And, um, you know, not hearing anything is not necessarily a good thing, but hearing the, the normal things is what I'm looking for. Like this morning I came out and a dog was carrying on, and the chickens were carrying on. So in combination of the two of those, I knew there was something going on. So I went back to take a look. There was just something in the field. I don't know if it was a rabbit or what it was, but... Something kind of went through the field and startled the chickens and then got the dog roused up. And, and uh, you never know, it could be a coyote standing there or a fox or, you know, it turned out to be nothing. But it was still something that the animals notified me right away that something was going on. Didn't need my attention, but you never know. I wanted to, to tell you I was impressed by your intuitive powers because the other day while I was painting your sign in the barn, you came and said, I think it's going to storm. And yeah, you can look out in the sky and see a big storm cloud, but you were like three hours ahead of that. You just yeah. had a sense that there, that something was coming in the next few hours. Was it just like a feeling in the air that you get? We we spend every day out here, every day, all day long. So you just get a feeling. You, you, we read on so many indicators. That's a thing. It's it's not ever any one thing. You know, I'm looking at the animals, listening to the animals. I mean, as we sit up here on our deck doing this, you know, I'm listening to everything that's going on around us. There's a breeze blowing. The animals are quiet and everybody's in the shade and everything's happy right now. But as this breeze picks up, you know, you can start seeing some of the clouds and the thunderheads start forming. And then you start feeling the humidity come in. So there's these levels of changes that we take note of. And, but yeah, it's being out here and, Working with nature, relying on nature, it takes every minute of awareness to see a change in nature to know if something's going to go wrong or good. Or I mean, it's not. I don't mean to say it. Everything we're always. It's easy to see the things that are good, but it's the things that go wrong that can put us out of business real quick. Kind of seeing the conditions at a place I've helped out was kind of kind of made me second question farming. I was kind of grossed out by it, and here it's like the opposite. Yeah. Everything's. It just looks clean. It looks good. It looks healthy. We take pride in in the fact that you know we're operating about eighty acres, and and um, right now we have about thirteen or fourteen hundred chickens on the farm between mm. layers and meat chickens. Um, only have seven pigs right now. Um, um, down to about fifteen cattle right now, but you don't know it. There, there's not one customer that ever comes to our farm and says, "Oh, I can smell something." 
Right. Um, it's right. it's it's quiet. It's yes. natural. You see grass everywhere you look. I don't even. I haven't even seen the pigs. I've been here for four days. Yeah. I haven't even seen them. Yeah, I, I can hear them back there. I can hear their feeder. So wow. that's you know just another one of those indicators. I hear a feeder lid slap every once in a while. I know the pigs are where they're supposed to be, and they're doing their thing, running around foraging. And every once in a while, they go back for a bite to eat. Mm. I guess something I wanted to ask you too was about, um, you know, you guys have been doing this homesteading farm life for for 30 plus years. I asked Krista if she had some advice for the young people my age that are starting this. Do you have anything too? Wow. Um, you know, well, I wanted to say that, you know, I work from home. My girlfriend works for home, from home. I love that lifestyle. Yeah. And I love seeing um, in documentaries and in, in TV shows, I love seeing these, these very family-oriented lifestyles. I did not grow up that way. Both my parents were at work all day long like IT jobs. I was raised by nannies. So when I see people that are doing these tight family units and basically their whole universe is their home and their backyard, I love it. So you've been doing this for 30 years. I see some people my age that are starting families and with yeah. this kind of a system. Like what, you know, what have you learned from it? And is there some advice you want to share? Yeah. I, it's not going to sound like very wise advice, but the biggest thing is to not Start small. That's what Chris has said, too. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh -huh. especially when you get, you know, it's one thing to plant too big of a garden and you can't handle it and weeds take it over. You just lose plants. I mean, not that that's not devastating to somebody that's growing, especially for the first time. But when you get animals involved, the plants are just as alive as the animals. Yes. Uh, you know, we definitely believe that. But it's just not the same. They don't have eyes and ears and nose and don't make noises that we recognize as noises. But So it's a much, much more devastating to, especially uh, somebody starting out, to start losing animals or have sickness. And um, You've experienced that? Uh, we, somewhat, yeah. Um, but th that's, you know, and, and also the animals cost more money. So, you know, let's say somebody has, you know, the grand idea to go out and start a cow herd, and, it, and that's a great thing. But getting too many and not having enough land and things can go chaotic really fast. And by the time they realize that I'm in way over my head, the animals are already sick. They've already probably had a vet in a few times. The bills are starting to rack up. Or worse yet, the animals are getting out. The fences can't hold them in. You know, there, there's just so many things that can go wrong. Do you have um, an example from your experience? Let's go with meat chickens. I, I'll tell you a, a quick story. When we first started meat chickens, Knew a couple people that already were raising them. We had raised plenty of laying hens, thought, well, no big deal. It should be easy to raise meat, meat chickens. We've already raised, I think at the time we had 100 layers. Um, you know, we started out year, many years ago, always had a family flock of 12 or 25 laying hens and moved up to 50 and then moved up to 100 and we were handling them fine and I had enough infrastructure to handle it and we were cruising along pretty good. Thought, well, now it's time to get into meat chickens. We'll start processing our own and... and see how it goes and see if we want to start a business of that more than just raising them for our family. Um, raised plenty of chickens, thought it was no big deal. Already had a couple extra net fences, kind of had um, kind of a hut extra setting aside. So I thought, well, I'll get me chickens and we'll raise them for eight or 10 weeks, like everybody says, and that gives me enough time to get some equipment. Well, I started raising meat chickens and they didn't they don't quite have the same foraging personality capability as laying hens do. 
So the laying hen infrastructure that I set in place for them didn't work quite so well. Um, I wasn't planning on moving them a lot, or they they didn't move so well in a net fence arrangement of of the same way that I moved the laying hens. So I decided, well, I'll just leave them in place. Well, I had about, I don't remember, I think we started out with 50 meat chickens and um, had them in this big net fence arrangement. They never went outside of 15 or 20 feet from their water source. So I ended up with this dirt lot in the middle of this beautiful net fence arrangement and grass all around them, and they just didn't care to go out there because their personality is they just won't go very far from their water. So not a big deal. You know, it's an easy learning thing. I didn't have death and disease and many major problems. We we lost a few animals because I didn't have um, great shade form and it got hot and, you know, the weather changes pretty quick. And um, still thought, well, I have a few weeks to get my equipment in order and be ready to process. Well, a few weeks went by really fast. Um, I was hoping to process three or four pound birds. Well, by the time we got the equipment in order and found the time to process them, I ended up with 10 pound birds. First time processing chickens, that was not a good way to start. Um, where we thought, you know, I had somebody that had done it several times helping us to kind of mentor us and help us out and had another guy helping us had never done it before. And of course myself and, and my son helped us. And um, we got through it, but it was a long day. Um, I think starting out, we started out somewhere around 50 chickens. I think by the time, as those birds get older, just the the genetics of them, the personality of them, their feeding habits, we lost, I think, 25 birds or so through the next several weeks because as they get bigger, the heat stresses them more. And, you know, just living on dirt stressed them more, not on nice grass underneath them. And, um, um, you know, a, a three-pound chicken can sit out in this 100-degree heat and, and cruise right through it with enough water, but a 10-pound chicken cannot. Uh, so we lost a lot of them to the heat, the environment. So we lost about half of birds by the time we processed, and we processed 25 chickens. Chickens, I don't remember the amount of time exactly, but it was all day. I mean, it was on a day like today. It was in July. We did it right over here in the yard under a walnut tree, so we had some shade, but... Everything was very spread out. You know, I had a scalder in one place and a plucker over in another place and trailer. We just loaded them up in a livestock trailer. And it was a pretty um, grueling day. Um, I, I remember specifically the, the guy that I had helping me that had experience doing it. His major advice was, I don't think you want to get into a business of raising meat chickens. This, you can't make a, you can't make a profit or a living at, at at this type of process because it was just a long grueling day. So, you know, the, the, it was very overwhelming experience. That was one summer we talked seriously about not ever getting into meat chickens because of that experience because I got way in over my head. Um, but we did still continue on with it. And the next year I got a few more and refined quite a few things. And it's somewhat of my personality too. I'm constantly looking to improve and refine um, so, you know, our first year we went from losing 50% of our, our flock and, and I don't know, we, it took us more than one bird per hour or something, you know, some ridiculous rate of pro, uh, processing and the equipment didn't work great and I made a lot of improvements equipment. Now we're down to doing about 1,500 chickens a year and I can process about 20 an hour. Wow. 
Um, wow. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, if I would have started smaller, it'd have been a lot easier to move forward, but we still continue to move forward and refine the process. And now we enjoy it and it's, it's nice and it's part of our livelihood, but um, it, it's, it's so much easier if you start small and crave more. Uh, if you get too big and start off too big, get too many goats, too many chickens, too many whatever, it, it can get overwhelming really quick. Interesting. Well, thank you. I was wondering if you had, I don't know if you, if uh, Krista kind of asked you in advance, but do you have any kind of stories throughout your life that kind of profound moment with nature? I've gotten stung in the past and I've known pretty much all my life that I was allergic to bees, particularly wasps. Um, yellow jackets don't bother me so much. Um, hornets have a different effect, but wasps really, really kind of overtake my system. Um, and I've gotten stung, you know, many times younger, uh, you know, being outdoors all my life. It's, it's just an ongoing thing. Um, when I moved down here and started working with, uh, you know, another farmer, he, I got stung by a wasp. I remember we were actually cutting hay. Wasp landed on my arm. I was on a tractor raking hay and stung me. And, and I knew, well, it, it back then when I was younger, it didn't really affect my internal system. It would just, my arm would swell up or my shoulder or wherever I got stung. And um, this particular farmer always had a cigar in his mouth, whether it was lit or not. He just was always one of those guys chewing on a cigar. So first thing he did is take the end off that cigar, chew it up and put it on my arm. He's like, just keep raking hay. We got to get it done. And, um, you know, that was kind of a next level of learning how to deal with that, deal with that natural effect on, on my system of being stung. And, and arm never swelled up. I didn't have any problem that night. I'm like, wow, I got a solution. Well, things progress as you get older. Sometimes they get better. Sometimes they get worse. But, and I've gotten stung several times. Well, I get stung every year. So, um, but I've gotten... I've had major incidents, incidents several times after that with wasps. And um, first time uh, I was stung, I was actually by myself loading some equipment in another farm. And I got stung and I felt kind of woozy, didn't know really what was going on. And well, next thing I know, I woke up facing the sky, laying in the grass, and it was raining on me. I had passed out, didn't know how long, didn't know what was going on, didn't know what stung me, didn't know if it was a wasp, a spider, didn't know anything. Um, so anyways, went nearby and got somebody to help me. Just, they actually took me to the hospital and called Krista and, and, uh, you know, still don't know exactly what, what happened, but it was the first time I had passed out. Um, so anyway, so we started taking things a little more serious. Um, you know, then that whole instance ended up fine. I didn't have any lasting effects, no problems. Just went to the emergency room. They shoved me full of a bunch of Benadryl and which a Benadryl, I think, affects me worse than a bee sting does. And uh, I ended up sleeping the rest of the day and went on with the rest of my life. Um, well, the next time a bee stung me, it was a little worse, a little more evident, a little worse. So, you know, every time we learn, um, I actually was in the house and uh, wasp happened to be in the house. It was in at the end of the day and, you know, we were kind of done for the day, already showered and and uh, I think I was sitting at the kitchen table having a snack or something. And uh, B come down and laying it here on my chest. And, um, of course, you know, like an idiot, I, I try to look down and see what it is. What stung me in the chin. 
Um, within about 10 minutes, I was passed out, and Crystal was calling the ambulance to come get me. And, and it was 11 o'clock at night, and he was out. And we, I had, you know, I didn't have an EpiPen or anything at that time, but EpiPens, we've learned, don't always work for him. Um, but we didn't know that, and I called 911, and they came, and, and they actually were going to pronounce him dead, and then he came back, too. All the blood had left his heart and went into his extremities, um, and it's his response to bees. And then he started getting bee shots after that, and that seemed to work for a while. He would get, you know, we get stung. It's just a given on this farm. There's so many flowers and things. And he got stung again. And with the, with the venom shots, he was doing fine. But that doctor told him, okay, we've done them for three years now. You're done. And he did some testing on him and said, you're good. And so we, we thought that was true. And he was good for a while. And we would always do OSHA when he would get stung by a bee. Um, an herbalist taught me that if you put OSHA under the tongue, it will work faster and it will go to um, help fill in the histamine receptors so that he doesn't have an overhistamine response in his allergy. And now OSHA's endangered. So don't everybody go out and buy OSHA. Um, we keep it just for emergencies for when he gets stung. It's a great respiratory herb, but we, we don't use it just for, just for emergencies. And that was working for a while. And then... So the third time, um, it was hot like this. So I was very dehydrated and um, was back in the field. And uh, some yellow wasps chased me down and got me in the back of the shoulder and actually stung me several times. I knew it was bad. So I immediately came up here and got Krista. And uh, we actually had some customers here, and of course had to stop everything. Um, so I know I've got a few minutes to um, get to where I need to be, or go get somebody, or you know, depending on who it is. Luckily, you know, Crystal was here; she knows how to handle things. You know, but I'm constantly thinking, okay, well, Crystal's gone for the day running errands. Who is here? And you know, I, I may need to give them instructions of what to do, or just call the ambulance, or whatever. Um, but, you know, hopefully this never happens again. But And um, it all happened pretty quick. And, of course, when I'm dehydrated and heated and, you know, your your pulmonary system's up and pumping, so obviously it puts everything through your system faster. That one was pretty bad. I, I passed out pretty quick, and I was out. And then he started convulsing, and I'm, I hit him with two EpiPens. It didn't do anything. I called 911. Luckily, they were on a really close call by here on another bee sting. Um, I actually, again, remember waking up before the ambulance took me away from here, and immediately I woke up. I'm like, oh, my God, my family is going to be so upset with me because, you know, this is going to change everybody's life. This is going to change our day-to-day -day routine. This is going to change everything. He was out but convulsing, but he was not coherent at all. And then he did go unconscious. And the younger paramedic said, are we going to call it? And, you know, and, you, and I've seen this before, and it's just, it's, you know, you just watch your whole world go in front of you um, when your spouse is like that. And then the lady who was on the call with him was older, and she said, we don't give up that easy. And she pumped him full of steroids, and it actually saved his life. But I still didn't know if it saved his life or not because they put him in the— ambulance and drove to town and I'm following. They said, just follow us. And, you know, I'm just following behind. I didn't know what I was going to get there to. And then um, we stayed in the hospital half of the day. And he, once he gets past that, he's okay. Part of the reason why I don't remember a lot of the stories that I don't know if it was me passing out, the amount of time I was out or how low my blood pressure got, a combination of things, I actually lost some of my memory. Um, things are, well, the memory's still there, but it's fragmented, you know, I'll see somebody's face and like, I know that face, but I can't put the name with the face. Well, then we found a better doctor and we actually started seeing allergists. And it's really hard because we are not, we have since, we've had so many bad experiences with the system 
um, that I wasn't really thrilled about going and finding another allergist. And it's not one of the things we teach in our classes is that we're not against the medical system. We believe there's a great integrated system. We believe in our herbalism, we teach how to preventively take care of ourselves, how to have good nutrition, how to use the herbs when we are moderately sick. And when we have serious things, we do need help and we do need to integrate those systems. And it's worked really well for us because we've had a lot of great relationships with doctors and nurses who've taken our classes and who send people to us and we send people to them. But the allergist, I've never found one I really liked before. And we, we just found one that we, we've, we love now, who's in Ruckersville. And he figured out that Rob has a mast cell allergy response. And it's very, like only 2% of the population has that. It's a very extreme allergy. And so he's been doing venom therapy, which did not go smoothly in the beginning. Every time he would get the little .02 of a venom, he almost went down in the office. And it was, and that was last year, last summer, we were doing these shots every week. And I mean, both of our blood pressures would just on the drive there would go up. We were so afraid that we were going to kill him with the shots. And that's not our normal way of thinking because being herbalists, we're, you know, we do it, but we couldn't, it was out of our realm and we knew when we needed to find something different. Um, so now he's up to once a month and it's basically two stings at that shot. And we're still not guaranteed that he'll do okay when he does get stung. So he doesn't have the mast cell quick response to allergy response to it. Um, when he does get, if, you know, stung, we're going to treat it right away, like watching him immediately, not assume that he's going to be okay because what they base their response on is, you know, an in-lab person who's not overheated and not dehydrated. Well, it's very rarely we're not overheated and not dehydrated when he gets stung. He always gets stung like this time of year when it's hot. Yeah, things are starting to come back. You know, our brains can repair itself. Pieces of the puzzle are starting to go back together. But it definitely affected, you know, my abilities and capabilities. Um, and, you know, that's a respect that we put on nature, how powerful things can be over, you know, we tend to think that we're the almighty, but we are not. Nature, nature can definitely show us. Um, for a long time, I wanted, right after it happened, I wanted to quit farming. I said, we can't do this. Every day you're walking out and it's dangerous. And, and every day I'm just expecting the call. And that's another thing that changed is we didn't like to keep our cell phones on us. We like to be in nature without the technology sometimes. I never not have my cell phone on me when he's outside now because I have to be ready to go if something happens. Um, and I did want to quit farming for a while, and we really sat with it, and we realized we couldn't do anything else. This is who we are and what we'll do. We'll never be inside people. And you could get stung. He was stung the first time that he went down that bad was inside the house. You get stung eating dinner out on a patio. I, I kind of always chalk it up to, you know, we've got just as much um, probability of dying in a car accident, um, you know, as I do dying from a bee sting out here. It's, it's, it can definitely happen. We can definitely die in a car accident any day, but you take precautions and you have awareness and defensive driving and watching the vehicles around you. Um, so, you know, what that's brought to me is, you know, learning more about my body, my system, um, you know, how to coincide with nature. And, and, you know, there's many things out there that can hurt us. It's not just bee venom. I mean, there's snakes, there's bears, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that can hurt us. And um, it just happens to be one of the, what seems to be unusual to our brain is something so small can have such a overwhelming effect on our systems. Um, but, you know, it's, it's brought more respect. It's brought more awareness. Um, we're constantly learning out here from nature. You know, I wish it didn't cost me so much and be so long-lasting on my system, but it is what it is. It's one thing to deal with for myself, but it's, it's quite a 
it gets overwhelming dealing with a, having a family, um, you know, because whether it's myself or my wife or my kids, we're, you know, we're all part of a unit and we support each other in different ways. And, and um, anytime anybody gets hurt, you start thinking about losing that ability to support that group of people that you're connected with. And, and that's probably bothered me more than anything. Besides the allergic reaction, you forget when you get stung how unbelievably painful it is. Yeah. Like, I stood on a hornet or something, and I, I was like, I can't even believe this. I can't believe how painful this is. And, like, yeah. feeling it travel up my leg. This little teeny thing with so much power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, wow. and we need them so much. That's the other thing. You know, it's not like you can, you want to eradicate them. We need them. We're saving the bees. Now we have a bee right here at the microphone. Um so it's, you know, it's, it's, there's this balance in this relationship and, and you just have to figure out how to live day to day. But I think there's that for everybody. We're just lucky that our, our, we get to do it in nature and mm-hmm. I'm not sitting in a car somewhere waiting exactly. to commute into Atlanta somewhere or something, you know, um, everything has its risk, but what it's really done for us is make us live in the now. And that was what was life-changing for me about this farm is learning how to not think about what other people thought or the ego part of it, um, and and just live here on this farm because like all my friends I went to college with and everything are out creating all these careers and here I am staying home with my kids and they're running through the yard and I look like I'm accomplishing nothing. And so did you ever worry about that? I did for a, a long period of time. Um, and then you, did you? Uh, so did you feel like you had kind of like opted out of life or something weird like that? Yeah, well, it was really hard to live between two worlds. I didn't opt out of life. I partially opted out of that other life that I grew up in. I went to school in Northern Virginia. Everybody was working in D.C. Everything was fast-paced. Everybody was making names for themselves. And and we were raised, you know, like I was a generation where you had to make a career for yourself. And I loved what we were doing, and I loved having kids, and I loved being here. But then you can ask Rob. There were times I was just, like, miserable. I'm like, you get to go have a career, and, and I'd be, like, annoyed with them for it. And um, it was because I was living between two worlds and li- living between two worlds almost ruined us because financially, because you would have clothes to go out with your friends and do things. And you would want to, you know, you would, you would want to have a nice car and you want to do all these things. And, and even my kids, like trying to raise my kids between two worlds, I wanted them to do all the lessons everywhere and all that. And then one day I was just like, we aren't going to do this anymore. I don't enjoy any of that. What am I doing with trying to do all that to keep, and, and that's how, our families are like they're living in that other world and that's fine for them but it wasn't fine for us and when we finally did that there was a lot of um unhappiness in our families with us they all thought we were crazy you what do you mean your parents and siblings yeah my parents and siblings his parents um his parents were better probably than mine hopefully none of them ever listened to this <laughs> but um but they all still didn't understand they do now more than ever they they've all kind of gotten it but in the beginning there was a lot of you know them thinking Rob was influencing me or his family thinking I was influencing him this way when really we were just going down a path together and and our kids really sent us down this path my my son's 26 and he's a nature nut like he I has wanted, to I be, wanted to ask you how the how you feel that this lifestyle affected your children and um did it seem to have a positive or negative effect on them. So when I was living between two worlds with them, it was having a completely negative effect on them. And I knew that. How so? Because they would be torn between being these little nature kids that we would just be walking barefoot in the woods and doing nature journaling and, and stuff out in the woods and all this fun stuff. And yet then they would be going in and taking guitar lessons or hanging out with kids in sports and whatnot. And that we, we didn't have money to do what the other families did. 
And so a lot of times it would be like they were going on a trip to King's Dominion or things like that, and we couldn't do it. And it's not that we never did those things, but we saved them more to do with family. Like, we couldn't just do it three times a summer, go to King's Dominion or something. So they weren't completely, you know, stuck in nature and never could do anything else. But there were limits to everything we could do. And and especially with technology getting, you know, more important in people's lives, that was really frustrating for my kids. Um, we didn't do video games and things like that. And, and they, they don't now, as adults, they are glad we didn't do it. At the, when they were preteen and teen, they were frustrated with us on some of that stuff. And they didn't get phones till they were older. They could use my phone, but they didn't get phones. And they had to work for a lot of things. Um, my daughter, she grew up more in our business as, a, as, as her life being the business. Um, she's really good at felting with wool. And she would felt things and sell them to customers. And she mm, would save that. money and she would buy herself a horse. She's a horse nut. And she would, she, she would do horse shows. And it was really hard for her because sometimes I couldn't do the horse shows. And I'd have to have someone else take her to the horse shows because I was working on the weekends because that's when our hours were open. And um, that was hard for her. And I think as they got older, she's 21 now and Dylan's 26. Um, as they're older, they realize now the value but there was a period when they resented us, and, and especially Dylan, he thought what we did was we just worked too hard, and we made him work too much. And he's just like us. He works all the time, but when he gets a minute off, he's in nature. He's smarter in some ways because his nature is totally relaxing. He's a fisherman, and he loves to, like, fly fish, and he loves to go on the river. He loves to kayak, and he truly relaxes when he's out in nature. Um, but he's not—it's not like they went and lived some radically different life. And my daughter— So they really appreciate it. As adults now, they really appreciate it. Yeah, they it. seem to, yeah. And my daughter's—she's um, a vet tech. She's working with animals. She works in a different scope than us. But she's still—you know, she's always loved animals. And she's always loved the cows here and the horses. We don't have horses now that she's gone. But <laughs> You used to have horses? For her, yes. Okay, wow. But she bought all of her own horses. And she had to earn it. And they, they kind of didn't like that when they were younger. But now they're both, they earn everything they have. And they work hard. And they get frustrated because their friends will make plans with them. And they'll be like, I worked four days this week and I'm so tired I can't go out tonight. And my kids are so used to working. They have so much energy to work and do things. And part of the, the generation around them seems to be like they don't have much energy to do things. And they get frustrated with that. And they're just like. You know, they'll even, you know, they'll mention that, you know, how do they not have energy? Huh. What do you think is going on there? I think that people... Is it the shitty potatoes and it's Oh, shitty food, definitely. And, and just a couch potato lifestyle. Yeah, like just the people... People learn that relaxing is sitting in front of a TV. And we just finally got satellite like a year ago for the first time. And we got it for the business more than anything. So our internet would work better. Um, but we never were like a, we watched movies once in a while, but it was like a movie night and we didn't ever, our kids never sat in front of the TV and, and that, that's just how they were raised. There was always something to do and it wasn't always work. I mean, we were working together, mm -hmm. so it was, you know, but it, they just it's weren't It's interesting raised. for me to take notes for my future kids on, yeah. you know, what, how to, how to have a. A family lifestyle. Yeah. And, and our, families, our families thought we were mean. They, they did say that a lot. They were like, you work those kids too much. You know, and my, my mom always thought that we were just way too tough on our kids. Interesting. Yeah. And, it, and they felt... And I questioned that when people would say it to me. And then we would weigh it out. And Rob was the bigger influencer. He would be like, he'd get mad at me for questioning it. He's like, mm. this is good for them. And they think that now too. They do, yeah. Interesting. That's very fascinating. Yeah. Whereas I'm sure when you're a teenager and stuff, you're no matter what your parents are like, you're always going to be kind of rebellious towards them no matter what. Yeah. Um, that's really fascinating looking back on that. 
Yeah, I always joke with them. They don't they don't come around and say, thanks, Mom, for working me so hard. But they'll say things, or I'll say, you should thank me that I made you. And they'll just smirk and say, yeah. Should we kind of wrap this up? Yep. Well, good. do you want to um, just, I guess, your classes have been canceled due to COVID. They, they've been postponed till next postponed summer. Postponed till next summer. And how does someone go find those? They go to your website? Go to our website, and we have a whole section of classes. We, we have... Um, our whole living class, which is the 12 classes commitment class, you have to be very serious. And it's the same 20 people in that class. And they, they we have what we call a whole living community. Um, we have 12 years of people who have taken classes that now have an online private group. And they are literally a community. Um, and then we, for the people who don't want to be that committed, we do have two and three hour classes um, listed. And we will probably do some this fall. We haven't done any this summer. We've just kind of kept it that everybody needs to stay at home and we probably will do some distance classes outside in the fall. Okay. And then next summer we'll do our, hopefully everything will be better <laughs> and we will do more of those classes. And I'll, I'll announce the website and Instagram and all that in the beginning okay. of the show. And, um, for folks who want to come by to buy some medicinal plants, um, tell us a few, some of the highlights of some plants you have here for sale. Um, we have over 220 medicinal herbs. I mean, we have all kinds of, you know, skullcap and mullein and um, nettle and things that you just can't find at the, the local stores. Um, we also we also have um, heirloom veg, a lot of heirloom vegetables. And the main season for plants is April, March, April through July. And then we kind of take a little break for a little while. And then we have plants again in the fall, which is mainly the, the fall planting herbs and lots of vegetables for fall. Virginia is a great place to grow a fall garden for, for vegetables. And um, and then the stores open year-round, Thursday through Sunday, 9 to 5. And so the plants are not always all year, but the store is always open where we have the meats and the eggs and a whole variety of our teas and things like that. All righty. And in closing, um, is there a particular plant that, that you're extremely called to and why? Oh, echinacea's always been my plant. Um, echinacea, before I knew it was echinacea, and I thought it was just purple coneflower, was the very first seeds I ever started. And I literally just threw them out in the yard and they took off, which is unheard of, really. Uh, most people have to start them in seed trays. Um, it's just been an herb that's worked well for me my entire life. And it, it's, I'm just called to its beauty. And then another one, just another one that most people don't know is the wild daga plant. Okay, I and don't know that one. That's a really, really nice um, herb to use, and it's used for pain. And and it grows in Africa, but you've been here for a couple weeks this summer, and scorching it's out scorching here. hot, and it loves loves it here. And the hummingbirds love it. But we we've had so many people who come that are in pain, and we will make them wild daga. Teach them how to. We teach people how to make their own tinctures. Teach them how to make wild daga and skullcap tincture. And that has helped so many people with lots of pain. Like what? What, do you, what kind of pain? What do you mean? Back pain, knee okay. pain, neck pain. Um, it's just really, really, really an awesome. And for those who are listening that are not herbalists, what do you use echinacea for? Um, to boost your immune system. And we also use it for tick bites. Oh, interesting. Um, whenever okay. a tick bites us, which we don't really get many ticks, um, but everybody else um, seems to get ticks. Like we know, everyone's like comes up to us and they're like, I had a tick bite here and what can I do? And you put and, it on topically. Um, you t- when you get remove the tick, you put it on topically, you put the tincture on topically. And if they, li- when the tick leaves behind bacteria, that actually kills the bacteria. Oh, that's awesome. And then you could take the echinacea internally if you're not autoimmune. If you're autoimmune, echinacea is not a good herb for you. Um, if you're autoimmune, I would recommend astragalus to boost your immune system. 
And but it works really well because almost anybody that gets a tick bite, it stays itchy for an, and irritated for a couple of days. If you use echinacea when you remove the tick, it clears right up. Wow! It's the bacteria that the tick leaves behind that irritates your skin. Wow! Or gives you worse very things. cool. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, well, cool. This has been awesome. Okay. Anything? Well, thanks. Any thanks final things, or you think we're good? I think we're good. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks.